Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Park Hill Church podcast. My name is Evan, and I am uh, one of the uh, pastors at Park Hill Church. And this is a c- just continuation of our God Breathe Conversation series. This is where we interview um, pastors and Bible scholars, theologians, uh, just asking them questions about the Bible and asking them what questions they have about the Bible and what do they do about those questions. And uh, today, uh, I am just beyond thrilled to welcome Dr. Sandy Richter to the Park Hill Podcast. Uh, she is um, just kind of a, a scholar of scholars, you know, a Harvard degree, a PhD in Semitic languages, Near Eastern languages and cultures, and she literally she's like the Indiana Jones, the real one, where she she goes. <laughs> She goes to the lands of the Bible and digs up the stuff the Bible talks about and shows the world uh, and, and writes books about it. And I heard her, I'll, I'll, I'll let her introduce herself in a second, but I heard her give a talk um, at the Exiles in Babylon conference a year or two ago all about um, the Old Testament's view of, of women in, in what is called the paterfamilias, the, the culture of the ancient Near East. Uh, I'll let her get into it. So, uh, please welcome Sandra Richter. Sandy, thank you. Oh, uh, thank you. <laughs> thank you for inviting me. It's lovely to be here. Oh, my goodness. So, yeah. I, I just want to start by asking you, uh, why biblical scholarship, but also why Jesus? Like, you came to faith mm-hmm. um, as an adult, and so what, where were you before that? And how did you encounter Christ and, and then become a a leading voice in how to read the Bible. Hmm. Well, thank you for the leading voice thing. Um, So I think I I, I told you I came as an adult. I came as an almost adult. Uh, So I was in my late teens and I had been raised in the Catholic Church and my parents were uh, good Catholics. Uh, We were in church uh, pretty much every Sunday, did the CCD thing, a little couple of Catholic schools, all that sort of thing. Um, But I had no personal faith at all and honestly had never heard the gospel, which makes me really kind of a little angry Mm. there. And not specifically at the Catholic Church. Any church can be guilty of this. You got a captive audience sitting in front of you, you know, every every single week take some time to make sure that everybody sitting there actually understands Mm -hmm. that jesus not only loves them he wants to know them and he actually has a plan for their life what a concept Mm -hmm. so it's actually some teenagers that shared the gospel with me as soon as they did um, because of my god-fearing upbringing i knew that was true i knew it was true Uh, but it it took a while um, for me to actually submit to uh, the authority of Christ in my life. It took me a long time to trust him because on top of coming from a Catholic family, I came from a really dicey family and there was a lot of injury and trauma before uh, the gospel got a hold of me. So um, I consider myself uh, incredibly lucky, blessed, uh, to be one of those brands snatched from the fire. Mm. So that's how I came to faith. Um, my dad promptly threw me out when I came to the faith. Oh, wow. So I spent the last couple of years of high school figuring out where I would live and what I would eat and all that sort of thing. Um, wow. Went to college. 
oh, it's a long story. Um, where you? Where, That's a mi- you've got you, you've you, got a limit on this well, podcast. For- you literally learned. You had to learn what the what it meant to be part of the family of God. Then, yes, the fa- the family of God rescued me for sure, and that whole business of leaving father and mother for the cause of the gospel and that he will multiply them tenfold has been absolutely true in my life. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of, you know, a lot of kids growing up with my kind of story, that's exactly what you need. You need someone to step in and redefine normal. Mm-hmm. And that is what the community of faith did for me. Wow. So you were forced out of your bio home of origin joining the family mm-hmm. of God, the eternal family of God. Well, how did you get involved in biblical scholarship? Why, why did you yeah. why did you go all the way? <laughs> you know? I know. It's a, it's such a crazy story that it's you know, it's gotta be the Holy Spirit, right? So I was saved in the Jesus movement. So I was sure that Jesus was coming back next week and there was no reason to waste your time on something silly like college, right? Mm. So I came from Montgomery County, Maryland. We were the leading school district in the country when I was growing up. Everyone I knew was going to college. I was looking at the sky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. um, so um, uh, I'm in this, this little house church. Uh, I have no idea that the larger church exists. Um, I was raised Catholic in a Jewish neighborhood. So Protestants, I really hadn't heard of y'all. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I uh, somehow got my hands on the book, The Cross and the Switchblade, which is the story of David Wilkerson oh, and yeah. Teen Challenge. Mm-hmm. And I'd never read a book like that before. And I was just stunned at the work that these people were doing. And the Holy Spirit used it in my life. He just grabbed a hold of my heart. And as I told one of the leaders in my fellowship, okay, I read this book. I, I, I can't sleep at night. Um, I, I have to find these people and I have to help them. How do I do that? And they explained to me that what I was experiencing was a call to ministry. Mm. And I said, okay, what's that? And they said, well, it means you need to go to a Bible college. And I said, okay, what's that? Yeah. And as the story progressed, I wound up in this little Christian college in um, Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. I trained for ministry. I worked in the Philadelphia Teen Challenge Center in the summers and went into ministry. Went into ministry, found out that ministry wasn't real keen on women in the pulpit, Mm. at least the denominations that I was discovering. And I kept crashing into uh, this recognition by the people over me that the calling was real and this cultural backlash that you can't do what you're doing. And that mounted Mm. until I, well, in the meantime, I went to Gordon-Conwell and got some more training and loved what I was doing. And uh, so the tension just kept mounting and I wound up working for this one fellow who's a big wig in my denomination. He was one of the five executive presbyters. And uh, he loved God, uh, but he was also old holiness. So he sat me down one day and said, okay, um, I, I recognize that this calling is real, but it can't be in the pulpit. Mm. And mm. I was like, what? Yeah. Why not? Um, 
And so he encouraged me to take this adjunct position at an even smaller Christian college with my master's degree and give teaching in the academy a shot. And I said, no, I'm really happy in the church. He's like, no, you really need to do this. And I was, eh. So we went back and forth a bit. He pulled some strings for me. I said, all right, God, I'm wide open. Do what you're going to do. And um, I drove to this little school and stepped in front of my classroom and I was teaching intro to Old Testament. And uh, Evan, I did not get through my introducing my syllabus before I knew that I knew that I had been designed in the womb to do this. Wow. And so I came back to Gordon-Conwell and I said, okay, how do I do this? And they all told me I needed a PhD and I was like, really? A hundred thousand dollars in my childbearing years for a degree? Really? And so uh, I wrote to every Christian college in the nation. I did. Uh, this is snail mail. Oh, wow. Asked who would, who would take me with a master's degree. And the three that bothered to write back said, get yourself a PhD and we'll talk. So okay. I applied to the three programs that I could commute to from my youth group because I had my priorities. Got to keep the youth group together. And that was Brandeis, Harvard Div, and Harvard University. Oh, wow. And I wound up at Harvard University. And God has been very faithful. And here I am doing what I do. Here you are. Yeah. I'm so glad uh, that you are doing what you do because the talk you gave... Um, at Exiles in Babylon was a uh, highlight for me. Uh, I, I'd love for you, if you could, just kind of, un- if mm-hmm. you could give like the elevator pitch version of that, of that talk. Uh-huh. Like, does, okay. does the Bible demean women? Um, mm-hmm. Especially in the text that you unpacked that, that day, which seems to, yeah. you know, on a surface level, to be, to be quite alarming, you know, <laughs> to, a, to a Western reader today. Like, right. And let me answer as a woman who, from my previous story, you can tell I've been marginalized plenty of times. I have um, had absurd things happen to me because of my gender in a very male environment. And I will say with every ounce of my being that no, the Bible does not demean women. But your listeners need to realize that when they pick up the Bible, they're picking up a very ancient text. And they're also picking up a library. They're not picking up a book. And so this encounter between the people of God and their creator spans thousands of years. And in each encounter, the creator of the universe, if he's going to engage humanity, he's going to have to step into real time and space. Mm. And when he steps into real time and space, he's stepping into somebody else's culture. And in stepping into that culture, he's got to adapt the images, the metaphors, and the means of communication that they recognize, not least being language. You know, if God showed up... um, here in Santa Barbara, California, and started speaking Arabic, there'd be about eight people who would understand him, and that would not be a very effective means to communicate. So uh, let me say that as we look at the Old and the New Testament, what we find indeed is ancient cultures and ancient means of engaging the gender roles of our race, but we find that in each text, what God is doing over and over again and very persistently is he's pushing those cultures back toward his character 
his character mm. that was perfectly uh, defined in his original intent in Genesis 1 and 2, his character that was rejected by humanity and will be restored at the end of the age mm. in our world. So when we look at the Old Testament, as you've already mentioned, we're stepping into a world that anthropologically speaking, I'm not pulling the popular definition, is patriarchal, patrilineal, and patrilocal. Mm. This is a traditional society. It is a tribal society. And it's very unfamiliar to most of your listeners. It would not be so unfamiliar uh, if you have a lot of listeners in Saudi Arabia right. or in the back country of Kenya. Um, they would recognize these patterns. And what they would also recognize is that unlike every surrounding culture, uh, the God of the Bible recognizes women as fully human. Mm. Um, you're not going to find a creation story coming out of the ancient world that will name woman with man mm. as made in the image of God. That's not going to happen. Um, you're not going to find a law code coming out of the Iron Age in the Fertile Crescent that penalizes as a capital crime a male rapist unless, um, well, I won't even go there. You're not going to find that. Mm. You're going to find in these law codes um, that the goal when a woman has been uh, sexually um, um, assaulted, mm -hmm. that the goal is going to be the um, redemption of the honor of the household, not the redemption of the individuals involved. Mm -hmm. um, and the Bible has an entirely different posture on that. And then when you get to the New Testament, oh my goodness, right. you know, the, the, the Greek philosophers talk about women and children as as subhuman creatures and instead our new testament is shouting that in this new kingdom there is neither jew nor greek slave nor free male nor female you gotta be kidding um, but all are equally human as citizens of the kingdom mm. long answer that, passionate about it i i love it and i um i'd love to have you come down to our church and do a thing on it but um, I, ha, ha, yeah, back to Genesis one, male and female, mm -hmm. uh, yep. and the image of God. Um, yeah. So, how much can you say about the the parallel between the image of God and the male and femaleness, and the co-equalness there? Uh, I'd love to hear you mm -hmm. just kind of un unpack that. How important is that? Uh, as you've already tagged, super super important. So we've got these two different creation narratives, and it's so important for us to realize that. The two narratives are coming to us with two different literary agendas, mm -hmm. two different perspectives. And it's helpful, I think, for us to think about the four Gospels when we try mm. to put this into our brains. Two different perspectives, two different literary agendas. So Genesis 1, which is the seven days, right, this ideal perfect week that God is offering to us, where the Creator is explaining His blueprint for the world we find ourselves in, in that particular narrative, humanity is created male and female on the sixth day. And that placement is completely intentional because we're looking at the seventh day, God is the authority overall. The sixth day, standing directly under, is humanity made in his image mm. as his stewards, his representatives. 
And then underneath humanity comes the other five days with all the habit habitats and inhabitants that operate in this, this amazing world of ours. Okay, so for humanity to be created on that sixth day, to be named Selim, which is the Hebrew word for image, mm-hmm. which also would have been the international word for idol. Oh, interesting. Local incarnation of the deity. Oh, wow. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. So that word communicates to us that Adam and Eve are being um, portrayed in this narrative as God's flesh and blood representatives in his temple garden that is the pre-fallen planet. Oh, man. And it's not just the male who is being identified. And I can guarantee you that in the Memphite theology coming out of Egypt or in Enuma Elish coming out of Mesopotamia, no one is going to bother with women. And yet Genesis 1 not only bothers with women, but there is absolutely no distinction between male and female in that account. They both have the same level of authority. They are both um, offered the same status in the creation narrative. They are standing shoulder to shoulder as God's representatives who are supposed to structure and manage creation from this point forward. That that isn't happening anywhere else in the ancient Near East. Well, I would love to jump to application. I mean, how is that happening in the church, how well is that <laughs> imaged? How well is the image of God being imaged in the very thing that is to be His family and His presence yeah. in the world? I mean, I, and, I don't mean to jump. Yeah. I don't mean to jump through all the all the theolo- Just cut to the chase, like, yeah, like if if well, and, yeah, and cut to the chase. If we were to talk about our biggest problems in the church right now, the things that are drawing blood, the people, the things that are splitting churches down the middle. Um, Uh, One of the primary issues is race. Another issue is caste, even though we don't talk about it Mm. as Americans, and the male and female. So when we go back to our paradigmatic humans, when we go back to the parents of our race, yeah, Adam and Eve are created in this garden that is a microcosmic representation of the planet. We know that by the way the story ends. Because when Eden is restored, heaven and earth are resurrected. That's how we restore Eden. So we know that Eden must have been the entire planet. Yeah. Mm. So from these two come every tongue, tribe, and nation. And this is what Paul, again, is shouting at us in the New Testament. Neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, old nor young, male nor female. He's slicing through every ranking of humanity that, that that we know of, yeah? Mm. And that ranking all evolved after Adam and Eve said no to their creator and after Adam and Eve began to reproduce and we became separated and divided, etc., etc. So what is God's ideal? What, what should the redeemed community look like? <laughs> well, it should look like the blueprint. Mm. That, that's what we're doing mm. as the redeemed people. We're heading back to the blueprint which means we are all sons of Adam. We are all daughters of Eve. We are all made in the image. We are all commissioned to steward this planet, its resources, and the people that God has entrusted to us. And if the church, oh my gosh, if the church had embraced that mission 
when Jesus came back and reminded us what that mission was, um, we would not have ever created denominations that split on black-white lines in the United States of America. We would never have been putting a portion of our worshiping community in the back or in the balcony. That never would have happened. Mm. And we would, have, we would never have found ourselves in a place where we have to explain to little girls that they are just as valuable as little boys mm. and that the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 has just as much intention of filling them with his gifts as he does filling their male counterparts. We wouldn't be there. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, <clears throat> yeah, Lord have mercy. So I, mm-hmm. I'd love to pivot to this, this question. A lot of these will be asked throughout this series, and I'd love to hear your responses to, uh, to especially this one. Uh, so what is one part of the Bible that you, you know, <laughs> Dr. Sandy Richter, you know, ancient languages expert, you've seen the archaeology, you've been in the trenches of the, of the research, so what is one part of the Bible that you're still, like, losing sleep over? And, and then don't stop there. What do you do about that, like, yeah. when, when you have that hard text? Um, loving Jesus faithfully mm-hmm. read the words of life well when it's hard. And what do you mm-hmm. specifically do? Yeah, I, I love that, and I love the way you asked that question. And um, just to clue your listeners in, um, Evan sent me that question ahead of time, and I was like, oh, oh, oh. So, chewed on that one a little bit. Um, so things, there are, there are a number of things I still have trouble explaining to my students. You know, things that I've come to peace with, uh, but they're simply not at a place yet where I can bring to bear enough information to make them comfortable with it. Mm. And as a teacher and someone with a pastor's heart, that frustrates me, you know, because I, I, I want to just drop everything and, and bring in all that data. And sometimes I'll wind up actually saying to students in, in a class, do you really want me to answer that question? Because... We're, we're, we're going, you know, over here. So things I still have trouble with in the classroom. I definitely still have trouble with the conquest and settlement. Um, I myself am okay with that one at this point in time, but, uh, have trouble dealing with that a lot as, as I came to list issues that I'm still working on, I realized that a number of them were what I would call post-exilic issues. So my degree is in Near Eastern uh, languages and civilizations of the Hebrew Bible with a pre-exilic history emphasis. Is this absurd or what? Um, That's (laughs) that's fascinating to me. What does that mean? Um, That means that anything that happens after 586 BC is no longer interesting to me. Okay, (laughs) that's funny. Um, I've had to work on that, yeah. Uh, So one issue that still definitely bothers me is uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. And when they return to the land, they make the local Jews divorce their pagan wives Mm. and disown their pagan children. And it depends which translation you're reading, if you get pagan or not. Um, but that, you know, that's the point, is that these wives are worshiping other gods, Elohim, Acharim. Whereas um, pre-exilic, 
those um, wives with other commitments would be expected to um, rearrange their religious commitments to, to match those of their husbands. That would be part of the powder familias. So that business of divorcing and abandoning wives and children, uh, one of the questions I ask myself is, okay, was, was Ezra really responding to a command from God there? Was that a cultural bias? What's going on? So that's a post-exilic question that I haven't sorted out in my own head yet. Um, I have a little trouble with the story of Esther and Mordecai oh. as well, also a post-exilic thing. I don't like the fact that she's gaining her influence um, by being uh, essentially you know, mm -hmm. the winner of a beauty contest. <laughs> I don't like that her name translates in Neo-Babylonian to Ishtar. Um, and I don't like the thesis of the holiday of Purim either. Mm. So those are things I struggle with. Okay, and so your second question, what do I do about that? So let me tell you what I've done um, about issues that I, I have resolved and what I have yet to do with some of my post-exilic questions. And I talk about this a lot in Epic of Eden, which I, I joke about is my soul on paper. So the first thing I do is I try to resolve the Biblish issue. And that was a word I, I thought I made up, but some people tell me I haven't. And the idea is uh, language, images, cultural metaphors uh, that are in the Bible, that are in English, but have become so familiar that they become gibberish. So how do I do that? Well, for me, I immediately start restoring context. I am going to restore historical context, geographic context, cultural context. I'm going to make sure that the terminology is translated correctly. Hmm. And once I do that, once I restore context, once I make sure that the translation is accurate, nine times out of ten, my problem is resolved. And I realize that the text has not been the problem, but perhaps the church or the translation has been a problem, mm. or perhaps my ignorance has been a problem. I tell my students that all the time. Because we don't understand something in the Bible does not mean they were wrong. It mm. might be we are stupid. <laughs> Just an idea. You know, to separate ourselves from our own um, hubris for just a moment and anticipate the fact that maybe we don't have a full grip on the book of Ecclesiastes yet. Maybe we are ignorant in our ability to read biblical numbers at this point in time. It, these guys are the PhDs of the ancient world. They're not doing this casually. So once I do that sort of reconstructing of context and language, and I truly understand the message that the narrator is trying to communicate, then I can go about translating his message yeah. into my world. And that actually is probably an important tag for the lecture you heard at Exiles. Yeah. yeah? We were talking about the sexual misconduct laws mm -hmm. in Deuteronomy 22. And in that passage, it, uh, it, it's talking about um, adultery, um, mm -hmm. seduction, and rape. And the great conflict in that pericope, that paragraph in the text, the first conflict is that in the New International Version, oh, the word that should be 
translated seduce is instead mm-hmm. translated rape. And between you and me and whoever's listening, I think I got that fixed this summer. Mm. Uh, so um, that, that was the first issue. There was a translation problem. And the verbs in question were the verb chazak, which means to forcefully seize, or tafas, which means to take, the way you'd take an instrument in your hand, or uh, the way you take a tool in your hand um, to accomplish something. Th- those are very different concepts. Um, so there was, there was a translation problem. There's also a cultural issue, which is we, as 21st century Americans, cannot imagine that anyone in this world does not have full sexual right. agency. The idea that every human being should have the right to choose their sexual partners. And we have convinced ourselves that that is a matter, right. a matter of civil rights and equal rights. Whereas, honestly, on most of this planet, um, uh, women do not have full sexual agency and definitely right. not in traditional societies. And by the way, my 12-year-old does not have sexual agency. If anybody touches her, they are right. guilty. Done. It doesn't matter if she said yes. She doesn't have sexual agency. She has minor status. So we talked that through, that cultural gap, the language gap. And when everything is said and done, what we find out is that the law code of Deuteronomy is actually protecting this young woman against the social fallout of, uh, of a premature sexual encounter, which will render her unmarriageable mm. in the ancient world, which means she's got no career path, she can never have a family, uh, and she will never have full social standing. And so what Deuteronomy prescribes is the young man who seduced her, who I called the walkaway Joe, mm old country song, that uh, he doesn't get to walk away. He has to marry her, he cannot divorce her, and he has to give the full bride gift. Another translation problem. We translate that as bride price, and then we, we assume that the young woman is being purchased from her family, when in reality the bride gift becomes her personal oh, wow. savings account. So if something happens to her husband, or if he divorces her, she's got the down payment for her next apartment, is essentially what it becomes. She's protected. Wow. She's protected. Now, it is true, though. She does not have full sexual agency. Sorry, No, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so helpful. Um, Gosh. It makes me me think back uh, on a previous interview podcast that we did for this series with uh, Nijay Gupta. Uh, and yes. he, he, I asked him this, this same question and reading in context, he still has trouble with the way the new Testament talks about slavery. That's kind of his sticking point. He wants mm. abolition to be explicitly pre- declared. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and in fact, in his reading, he, he sees almost the contrary. He sees maybe the mm-hmm. seeds a broad kingdom redemption seeded in the text of the New Testament, but and and I'm totally trying to pit you against him right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. in, no, that's fine because I'm 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 chomping at the bit to respond. So go ahead. <laughs> yeah, in, in his reading, uh, Paul's Paul's telling Philemon 
to basically, mm -hmm. go, yeah, go receive back. your receive him back as a slave. Treat him nice and Christianly, but but don't free him. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and I'm like, mm -hmm. what about you know in the pastorals? Paul Paul basically condemns human traffickers, mm -hmm. uh, and he's like, well, we didn't get the memo for 1800 years, and uh, actually, Deuteronomic law forbids kidnapping. Go there ahead. we go. No, yeah, mm -hmm. I would love for you to hear you just respond to Nijay in good yeah. faith at this moment. Yeah. Um, so realizing that I live in the pre-586 world, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, probably a, a major difference between the way Nijay and I would approach this is that I'm first going to approach slavery from uh, an economic posture. And in fact, I meant to look this up before our podcast this morning, and it, it got shoved off my to-do list. And what I meant, I'll get there. Uh, so economic perspective. Slavery is all over the ancient world. It is not unique to any culture. Every culture has slavery. And every nation has slavery. Why do they have slavery? Because they didn't have chapter 11. That's why they have slavery. And what I wanted to look up, actually, was uh, what happens to someone after they declare Chapter 11. Um, and who knows, maybe you know more about this. So slavery, there are two types of slavery in the ancient world. There's chattel slavery, where a, a slave has actually been uh, purchased and becomes the, the property of their owner. And there is debt slavery. And uh, chattel slavery in the ancient world results from war, primarily. So we don't have the Geneva Convention. We don't have prisoner of war camps. We don't have refugee camps. We don't have the Red Cross. We don't have the Christian Children's Fund. We got none of those things. So if you conquer another country, there are two things that can happen to their civilian populace. You either kill them or you enslave them. So that's where most of chattel slavery comes from. Debt slavery is chapter 11. And uh, again, it's all over the ancient world because people fall on hard times and they sell their land and uh, they sell their home and they uh, uh, start commissioning themselves and their families into debt slavery. So what I want to do at that point in time is I want to narrow the focus to what the covenant community is commanded to do regarding slavery. Mm -hmm. And in the Old Testament, chattel slavery between two Hebrews, two offspring of Abraham, two members of the covenant community is completely forbidden. It's against the law. Okay. So Ninja, take, take heart. Chattel <laughs> slavery is against the law. Debt slavery, however, is an economic necessity. And with that economic necessity, as I'm sure you know, a Hebrew can sell themselves into debt slavery for a maximum of seven years. At the end of that seven years, it is the responsibility of the uh, debt slave owner to not only free that individual, and his children, and whatever he brought into slavery goes out with him. But he's also required by the manumission laws of Deuteronomy 15 to give that debt slave the amount of income he needs to restart his flock, restart his farm, 
and again put a down payment on his first apartment. So the manumission requirements are generous, debt slavery is limited, but as you probably also know, that debt slave can say, you know what, my life here as your servant is so much more secure and so much more positive than the life that's waiting for me in freedom, I'm going to stay here. Pierce my ear. That lovely old glad song, if you used to ever listen to them, pierce my ear, oh Lord my God. Um, so uh, those two big categories. Now we move into the New Testament, yeah, where we're dealing with Greco-Roman uh, practices of slavery and uh, Israel is no longer an independent community. Our our Christian communities, our subcultures, they, they have no access to changing the laws of the land. So they're dealing with Greco-Roman slavery, which I'm not an expert in. But what I hear in the book of Philemon and what I hear Paul saying, and I love this, is not a redefinition of slavery. It's a redefinition of brother. That's mm -hmm. what I hear. And I hear Paul telling mm -hmm. slave owner and slave that I can't change the economic situation. I can't change Roman law, but I can change, I can remind you what covenant law is. And covenant law is that slave of yours is your brother in Christ. He's mm. your co-heir. Mm. And you will treat him as a brother when he's under the roof of your house. So I, I hear more than the seedbed of abolition I hear a covenant community redefined. Wow. And, and so when I look at my own history as an American, and now I'm going to start crying, and I think about the African community that actually was able to hear the gospel under the incredibly inhumane conditions that they were living in, when those who claimed the name Christ were torturing and raping and and tearing families apart <laughs> that I, is such a miracle yeah mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then and then Jeez. we hear the the old black spirituals and the um the passionate committed black church that still survives in this country and once again if the church had been the church um those things wouldn't have happened yeah. And, uh, wow. Yeah. My goodness. Well, uh, I think we have time if you do for one more yeah. question. Uh, I'd love to just kind of bring it home. Yeah. Uh, all of this Bible is your profession. It's, yeah. it's your joy. It's what you get to, uh, exposit for your students and for the world and for your readers. Um, and yet Bible is where the Trinity wants to meet Sandy Richter, yeah. you know? And so you have this loving community of persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, who are acting on Sandy Richter when you come to Jesus in the text. And what is that like? Like, like how, how do you go from, you know, what, everything you just did, like the, the historical context pre-exilic and relating that all to New Testament and the church and how we're supposed to live, and then wait a minute, I'm gonna meet Jesus in the text, what is that shift like? And, and what, are you, what is that like for you? Yeah. Um, you're just committed to making me cry today. That's, 
um, so uh, sometimes it's you know super personal, right? Sometimes I'm facing a a crisis that uh, you know there's just no way that I can deal with it on my own, and I I think of I think of folks like your brother and the amazing music that they have composed that I put on mm. loop on my phone and scrub my brain with the truth that it's okay that this fight is bigger than me it's it's okay that I'm not good enough to handle this and I remind myself of who God is and that comes to me most often through the Psalms and most often through particular prophetic oracles where um, I am reminded of who he is in the midst of our broken, fallen world. And one of the things I say in my Psalms curriculum um, is uh, that the Psalms are unique in, uh, in the scriptures because they don't speak just to us, they speak for us. And I will find myself in that position on a regular basis where I'm reading a Psalm for me and David or his contemporaries are busy praying for me uh, through that passage. Mm. So I do that sort of thing, for sure. And, um, mm. But I also really love what I do. And I really love digging deep into the Word and coming to fully understand it. I love coming to understand Philemon better. I, I, I love wrestling a Deuteronomic law to the ground until I understand how I can apply it to me and to the people around me. Mm. And I consider it one of the, maybe the greatest privilege of my life that I, on a regular basis, get to stand in front of classrooms of people and I'm the one who gets to say the words, you know? And I'm mm. sure you feel that way when you stand in a pulpit. It's um, wild. Yeah, it's a wild, yeah, I, a wild, wild to, privilege. I get to say the words. And uh, so both my formal studies, my personal studies, uh, God is constantly reminding me that I am creature, not creator. He is constantly reminding me that I am precious to him. I'm not just a commodity that needs to be distributed because I lean that direction. Mm. Um, that... Uh, Sabbaths are important even for professors and pastors, by the way, mm -hmm. Pastor Wickham. Um, and, uh, and he's every day teaching me more of who he is and who I'm supposed to be. Well, my goodness, with that, uh, so much to chew on and take with into our week. I uh, can't thank you enough, Sandy, for being with the Park Hill Podcast and for talking with me today. I'm going to hit stop on the recording thing okay. and then we'll let it upload and then we can say our goodbyes offline. But thank you, um, Park Hill Church. Look up Dr. Sandra Richter and all her writings. Just so rich. Her stuff on Eden and what it means to be made in God's image is just uh, yeah, leading the conversation and leading people to Christ. So um, tune into that. And may the Lord bless and keep you, church. Have an amazing week. <laughs>